The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. And as you know, this year, we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that's why frequently on this show, I begin by saying, hello, Yoshiko Dart. I am sorry I missed you at the Epilepsy Walk, which everyone knows I have epilepsy. But thank you so very much. You are one of the greatest people I know. And, of course, if you don't know, she is the wife of the late Justin Dart, who is just an icon in the disability community. And I know someone that knows him very well, our guest today, a longtime advocate. He is also a friend of mine and of the disability community. He's a national leader. He's very well known. And I just want to say one thing here about Jim. He is the real deal. He is the real deal. And Jim Weissman, welcome to the show, General Counsel of United Spinal Association. Welcome. Thank you, Joyce. I'm happy to be here with you. Okay, so Jim, I thought we could start for our listeners if you would tell them uh, how you first became involved in the disability community. Right. I had kind of a, 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 I had no firsthand knowledge about disability. I didn't have a close relative with a disability or, or friend, and I was a teenager, and my parents told me to get a job for the summer or go to summer school, and I didn't have a driver's license, so I had a very limited range of places I could work that I could take my bicycle to, and uh, I thought I had a job at a grocery store, and when I showed up, they told me they gave it to someone else, and I was very hot for a girl that was volunteering in a day camp for disabled kids near my home. I asked my parents if volunteering counted because they needed volunteers, and they said yes, so I volunteered at a camp for disabled kids, and there were disabled counselors who were uh, my age and I was a lifeguard in the pool. These were physically disabled uh, teenagers and down to kindergarten age who uh, were not mainstreamed. There was no such thing as that then. It was 1967, and um, this was their, their summer camp, and I was a lifeguard that summer. I met contemporaries with disabilities and realized there was nothing to disability, that it's, you know, just people, and... Um, I never thought there ought to be a law or anything or there ought to be a political movement or there ought to be even change. But I did notice that people treated people with disabilities badly. I, a, a good friend of mine, uh, a person who became a good friend of mine, was the ham radio counselor there. That was Paul Hearn. Uh, 
And uh, Paul and I, Paul was a little older than me, so he got a driver's license before me. He was osteogenesis imperfecta, meaning he had brittle bone disease and was dwarfed. He had been homebound since he was, uh, till he was 13. He never went to public school till he was 13. And then he went to uh, a special school um, for disabled kids. That was where this camp was affiliated. And uh, we became friendly as teenagers and stayed friendly through college, and then we both went to law school. So because I was friends with Paul and stayed friendly with Paul, um, I had a lot of other disabled friends. But it took a good 10 years for me to have my first political thought about disability. Should I tell you that story? Yes. It was 1977. Um, Secretary of HEW, Califano, Joe Califano, was refusing to sign uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act regulations. Section 504 prohibited discrimination by recipients of federal financial assistance, like all state and local governments, for example. And there were no regulations written yet to implement it, and it was 1977. Well, the first set of regulations were written by HEW, uh, by a, a guy who we both know and love named John Wodach. And um, they would, uh, Califano was refusing to sign them. It required reasonable accommodation. Um, and there was lots of demonstrations, and I was aware of it just from reading the newspaper. Vietnam veterans throwing metal purple hearts back over the White House fence and picketing Secretary Califano's home and church, and I noticed it. And I ran into Paul Hearn on the street. I used to live in Lower Manhattan in Tribeca then, and uh, there was a bar on my corner called Puffy's, which is still there and was there probably 100 years before that, and we went into Puffy's, and I said to him, congratulations, and he said, what do you mean, and I said, you got the 504 reg signed, and he said, it's just a piece of paper, my life's exactly the same, and uh, he said, well, that's true, but change is on the horizon, and he said, think about it, and we started talking about it and about people's innate biases and prejudices. And um, after 10 years of knowing each other, um, we began talking about what the law could do for people with disabilities. But it took fully 10 years and law school educations for us to get that far. Then I took the bar exam, and we wrote a grant proposal together for Legal Services Corporation and got it funded, and we did the first disability project in the nation for uh, disabled poor people in New York City. And, you know, that's how I got involved. Wow. That is quite the story. Isn't that yeah. amazing, though, how things can happen? We didn't even happen. intend to provide groundbreaking civil rights legal services. We intended to provide landlord-tenant, domestic relations, welfare, social security disability, poor people's legal services. Um, that's what we intended to do because there were 21 legal services corporations offices in New York City. This is pre-Reagan. Now there's about seven. But um, there were about 21 of them. They were funded by the federal government um, based on the population of poor people in the city. But 19 out of 21 of the offices were architecturally inaccessible. 
So we pointed that out. Um, and uh, Senator Javits from New York and a congressman also from New York named Mario Biaggi helped us get funding from the Legal Services Corporation to open up our offices. Then we were brand new lawyers. We didn't know what we were doing. So we had to hire someone to tell us what to do <laughs> with the money. We opened the door to do traditional legal services like I described, and those people came in. But so did people who say, I, don't, I can't get a job because I'm disabled, or a landlord won't rent to me because I'm disabled, or I can't get on the bus or down the curb or understand uh, when I go to a movie or a lecture, and we became civil rights lawyers. Wow. And how long ago was that, Jim? That was 1977. So it's 38 years ago. Well, Jim... And today is my 64th birthday. I know that. We were going <laughs> to sing happy birthday. Happy yeah, birthday I'm to feeling very you. old. What? I've been a lawyer old. 38 years, you know. <laughs> well, happy birthday to you today. Thank you very um, much. Yeah. So, Jim, uh, you... You also were a founder of AAPD. How did, how did that happen? Well, Paul was working for the, uh, uh, by the way, the Legal Services Corporation, Paul and I worked together for two years there. And then I went to work for Governor Carey from New York, uh, who was opening up an office for, of advocacy for the disabled. And I was very unhappy when I got there. Um, and Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association, which is now called the United Spinal Association, uh, offered me a job, and I left uh, after a very short time in the governor's office. And um, I, I got involved with uh, accessible transit litigation in 1979. We sued New York City. By 84, we had settled uh, for buses key subway stations, and paratransit, which is the basis for, this, for the ADA uh, transportation provisions. And we did it again in 88 in Philadelphia, we settled. So we had the two oldest, largest rail cities. And the ADA started being talked about in 88, and nobody understood transit, and there were no transit experts willing to help us so I got involved in Washington trying to frame the ADA transportation provisions and then lobbying for the next couple of years to get the ADA passed. So I, I met a lot of Washington types, and Paul Hearn had left and was working for the Dole Foundation on employment of people with disabilities. Well, Senator Dole decided he couldn't raise money for two things at once, and he wanted to do the World War II uh, memorial in Washington. So he told Paul, whose dream was to start AAPD, to take the money that's left in the Dole Foundation um, bank account and start this organization. So Paul, which, and this really was his dream, a cross-disability advocacy and consumer organization. And uh, he put together some uh, names you'll recognize. Um, John Kemp, um, Justin Dart, I think John Lancaster, um, Denise Figueroa, who runs the Troy Independent Living Center in New York, and actually um, was a plaintiff in our transit case in New York City. Um, a few other people, I, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on who. 
Oh, Judy Chamberlain, a mental health advocate who's since passed away. Um, and we formed uh, AAPD, and uh, it's still extant today. It's had its ups and downs, as you know, because you're very involved. Um, it's still extant, and it still has the same mission. And uh, we've been successful in becoming a go-to organization on disability policy when people in Washington want to know how a proposal would affect people with disabilities and also an effective advocacy voice for people with disabilities. You know what I did not, I guess I did not connect this, that really then it's Senator Dole that caused this to happen. Yes, it is. There's no question that uh, he put up the seed money with his foundation. How about that? Yeah, well, a great man he is to begin with. I mean, he has just done so many great things for the disability community, and we will talk about that a little bit more when we come back from a break. If you just tuned in, we're talking to Jim Weissman, General Counsel of the United Spinal Association, a true advocate for civil rights for people with disabilities. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back with Jim. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S. and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. We are talking to Jim Weissman on his birthday. 
the general counsel for the United Spinal Association. So everyone in the United States will know it is Jim's birthday today. Jim, aren't you glad I told that to everyone? Yes. As I get older, I get less and less glad. (laughs) So, Jim, before uh, we talk about your role as the United Spinal Association, I know that as you've already discussed, you knew Paul Hearn very well. And, you know, we have that Paul Hearn Award. And when I first joined uh, with AAPD, and by the way, Jim is the head of the committee that reviews applications to be a Paul, Paul Hurd Award winner. And that person, of course, someone with a disability that has given back, is awarded at the AAPD Gala. So with all of that, you know, when I first joined, oh, Paul Hearn Award, wonder why they started it. Why did they have that name, Paul, Paul Hearn Award? So I obviously never met him. I wanted you to just take a few minutes. What was he like? I'm happy what? to do that. Okay. Um, Paul was, I think he died at only 48 years old. He's dead a while. He's dead about 17 years. Um, he died of pneumonia. Um, he didn't have to. He didn't take care of himself, in my opinion, very well. Um, but um, Paul was the most garrulous you know, when they say the Irish have the gift of Blarney, Paul really had the gift of Blarney. Um, he could talk to anyone about anything. Um, people actually say that about me, and I, 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 it's funny because compared to Paul, I, I, I'm, I'm completely inept. The guy could speak to kings and queens or bums on the street, and because he was in a wheelchair and he was in a gurney a lot of the time with his legs out because he was casted a lot when we were younger, because of the brittle bone disease, bums would come up to him all the time <laughs> on the street, uh, you know, figuring he was a panhandler. It was in, and he, he was, a, you know, people would hand him money on the sidewalk, and he would hand it back and say that he was a lawyer and thank you very much, but I have a job. Um, he, he was a very funny guy. He was president of his high school class and then went to Hofstra University and on Long Island. He and lived in the dormitories. His first disability activism was to, there were disabled students at Hofstra in the dormitories. This was 1968. There were disabled students in the dormitories, but they weren't allowed to live above the first floor. And Paul um, got involved with others and had a big student action, disabled student action, to allow them to live on any floor they wanted. Um, by the way, he then ran for student body president at Hofstra University and was elected, and he beat Norm Coleman, who uh, was from Brooklyn then, but went on to become the mayor of St. Paul and the uh, senator from Minnesota for many years. Isn't that um, something? Yeah. So, you know, it's a small world. When I saw Norm Coleman when he was mayor of St. Paul, I went, is this the same guy with the long hair and everything from Hofstra? But it was. It was. Um, so I didn't go to college or law school with Paul, but I, I hung around with him all through our teenage and college and law school years. And uh, he has a wonderful family. Um, when he died, Senator Dole spoke at his memorial service right before me. And Dole said, you know, I never even talked to Paul about whether he was a Republican or a Democrat. 
<laughs> we only talked about hiring people with disabilities and getting them jobs. And I had prepared remarks, but I said I have to just say something, Senator Dole. Um, I've been to Paul's uh, family home that he grew up in, and there was a picture of uh, Bobby and John Kennedy over the fireplace. <laughs> so that'll, that's your answer. <laughs> um, but uh, he, he knew that disability was apolitical. Um, he was a remarkable person. We, were, uh, we had an appointment. He met an aide to Senator Javits, Jacob Javits, from New York, when we were looking for funding for our legal services program. And the guy arranged an appointment for us with Senator Javits at his Third Avenue office in Manhattan. And we were driving up. You know, Paul had a special parking permit, so we could drive in Manhattan and park. And, of course, transportation was all inaccessible at that point anyway. And uh, we, we pulled up to Javits' office. And as we're getting out of the car, he says to me, watch this, the negative presumption at work. I go, what's the negative presumption? He goes, when we go into Javits' office, he'll talk to you um, because I'm disabled. And then when I speak up and he realizes I'm only as articulate as you are, he'll feel guilty for thinking I was an idiot because I'm in a wheelchair, overreact, and give us everything we asked for. And I well, laughed and I said something like, from your mouth to God's ears. That's exactly what occurred. Exactly. Oh. Um, he, he would always do it. He'd sit on the aisle, and Mayor Koch would walk down the aisle, and he'd go, watch this. Koch will stop when he gets to me and shake my hand if there's a photographer. And that's exactly what happened. He goes, yeah, you know, wheelchairs are good for this. You know, he, he, he was very funny about it, but it all had to do with stigma and discrimination, and we both know it. Um, and and uh, he was a remarkable guy, a million friends, Never had trouble uh, meeting people and making uh, lifelong friends. Never had trouble meeting women and going out on dates. And despite his disability, um, he he really had a great social life and uh, a very full. I mean, he died at 48 years old, so obviously it wasn't a full life. But what life he lived was very full. I, I'm only sorry I never met him. Yeah, I, very I really funny am. Guy. He moved to Washington from New York and became very, very close friends with John Kemp, uh, a, a quadruple amputee uh, lawyer, uh, now living in New York and was one of my neighbors, but <laughs> lived in Washington then until very recently, and uh, uh, John Lancaster and several others. And, and of course, he invited Justin um, and those folks to uh, found AAPD as well. Yeah, that is truly. You know what, Jim? More oh, I left of out. Our, After more college, he hitchhiked across Europe by himself. Paul in a wheelchair. Yes. He went to Europe by himself and hitchhiked across Europe. And he's, I mean, if I, he's, you know, probably three feet six inches tall if he stood up. He had long, wild, curly hair. It was the hippie days, you know. And he was hitching across Europe by himself. His stories were unbelievable when he came back. So you mean people would have to stop, and what would they do? Put They'd his have to wheelchair, load, carry him into the car. My first job, we carried him up a flight of steps every day. He wasn't that heavy; he was small, but we carried him up. One person would take his chair, and one person would take his uh, body. <laughs> um, it was that bad. But uh, you know, 
everybody thought it was the other guy's responsibility. We'd go to see theater owners about making theaters accessible, and they would say, well, if we made the theater accessible, how will people get here? And, of course, that was a big issue. We couldn't argue. Um, so transportation became my thing because everything seemed to revolve around it. One day, Paul said to me, you do transportation, I'll do employment, as if we were actually going to make a difference. And then we both went on and dedicated, <laughs> dedicated our lives to doing that. It was wow. kind of an offhand remark at first. Wow, that is amazing. Well, Jim, now we can finally get to your real job at United Spinal Association. Yes, what ma'am. do you do there? What is your role there? Well, I'm general counsel, but I'm also executive vice president. So there's lots of corporate things I don't like to do, um, but that has to get done when you're running an organization. Um, you know, fundraising things and registrations and contracts. And so, of course, I hate doing that, but it's, comes with the territory and employment, uh, you know, personnel issues. And it's not my thing. I like the substance much better, but it's the price you pay to get involved with substance. What I do at United Spinal, we're also a veteran service organization, too, so I, I keep my hand in the veterans' benefits arena, too. Um, but when I got there, the interview was uh, very unusual. I was in, my, in the governor's office in the World Trade Center, and uh, my boss was telling me off in front of somebody from Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association for counseling people to sue the state if they didn't do right by them because the law was on their side. And my boss was angry and took me out of the room and told me off, and I went to the men's room. Well, I went to, I, we had a break for lunch, and I was giving people instructions in the World Trade Center about how to get around because it's so big with local and express elevators. My boy said he wanted to talk to me, and I said, well, Harold wants to talk to me. Why don't you guys go, and I'll meet you in the dining room. And they, he said, you won't be going. Oh. So it was obvious to the people that were going to reconvene that there was a problem. I went to the men's room before we reconvened, and Terry Moakley, who passed away this year, a quadriplegic Marine veteran of Vietnam era, said to me, what are you going to do? I knew him, but I didn't know him well. He said to me, what are you going to do? I said, about what? He goes, this job. I go, what am I going to do? I just took it. He goes, but you don't like it, do you? And I said, no. But my wife was pregnant with our first child. You know, it wasn't like I was going to run away and take another job. And he said, if you had some place to go, you would go. And I said, yes. And the next day, uh, EPVA's executive director called me, a guy named Jim Peters, after whom the Bronx VA hospital is named now, and said, uh, understand you want to work for us. I said, really, there's a job? And he said, well, who in your family is disabled? And I said, nobody. And he said, then why do you want to do this? And I said, it's the ground floor of something big. This is a civil rights movement about to happen. I want to be part of it. And uh, he said, what would be the first thing you'd do? And I said, sue the New York City Transit Authority. I was 28 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and he, was, he liked that idea. I, spent, uh, I came there in June 79, and I've never left. And uh, I, I uh, 
spent the summer writing the complaint against the transit authority, and then uh, we filed uh, that September. We actually uh, served Mayor Koch personally at a convention, which was fun to do, <laughs> to do with the papers. And uh, Mayor Koch was saying it would be cheaper to pick cheaper to pick up people in limousines than to make transit accessible. And uh, nobody took our behalf. Um, the newspapers were completely against us. We survived a motion to dismiss made by New York City's Transit Authority, in which they argued they don't discriminate. They don't post signs that say no disabled allowed. And if disabled people can get on their vehicles, they take them wherever they want to go. So how are they discriminating? They actually said if you wanted to crawl in, you could. In their paper. Wow. Yeah. Um, So we argued that, well, that you don't have to do anything under a non-discrimination law for people with disabilities if you're not doing anything at all for anybody. But once you're acting, once you're buying a bus, once you're renovating a station or building, all of these are verbs, buying, renovating, building a new station, you have to do it so that everyone can use it, not just people who can walk or see or hear. Um, Otherwise, the New York State non-discrimination law, which included disability since 1974 at that time, um, means nothing. You have to act in a non-discriminatory way. Um, And uh, we hung in there long enough for Mario Cuomo to run for governor against Koch in a Democratic primary in New York. We knew Mario Cuomo because Governor Carey, he was lieutenant governor to Governor Carey, and Governor Carey made him the head of the international year or decade or whatever it was of people with disabilities. And which was kind of an unimportant job, so the lieutenant governor got it. And it captured the governor's imagination. I mean, not the governor's, Mario Cuomo's imagination. And he opposed, when he opposed Koch in the Democratic primary for governor in 82, he took our behalf. Up until then, there were only two or three politicians in the whole state of New York who took our behalf. Wow. Every editorial board, every paper, New York Times. New York Times also opposed the Americans with Disabilities Act, by the way. Who? Um, the, the New York Times. But You are kidding. Wow. No, I know. They don't admit it, and they're pretty good on disability now, but you never see them go back and say, by the way, we were wrong about this. Um, but uh, Koch and Cuomo squared off, and I don't believe the disability access to transit thing was the dividing, was the difference. But clearly, Cuomo made commitments. He said, if I'm elected, because the MTA was lobbying the New York State Legislature to get out from under uh, an injunction that we had gotten that said they can't renovate stations unless they make them accessible. And uh, Cuomo said, if I'm elected and you get that law passed, I'll veto it. People have to, you know, the same reason the ADA passed. Everybody... The left and the right can agree on one thing. Everybody who can work should. No one argues with that point in America. Um, every minority group knows that that's 
that's the access point uh, to equal treatment is jobs. Um, when you're working, it's very hard to be disrespected. The people who work next to you that you do the same job for the same money as respect you. Um, bosses see that you're as productive, if not more productive, than anyone else. If your boss is disabled, the disability goes away. I will tell you, I've worked for disabled people my whole adult life. Their disability goes away, and it's the fact that they're the boss that you notice. Um, and I, I think that uh, ADA passed because the left and the right could agree on that, and that's the reason that people supported access to transit. In New York City, 80% of the people who work use mass transit to get there. So why would people with disabilities be any different if they were going to work? And that's why uh, people supported us in the end, I think. To say nothing of it's morally and ethically correct, but morally and ethically correct <clears throat> don't necessarily cut it when the price tag, when there's a price tag. The alternative, however, is keeping people home and unemployed, and that's not free either. Right. You know, there's lots of subsidy associated with that. Well, you know what, uh, Jim, we have a question for you here from a sure. Leanne in Delaware. And Leanne's question is, um, Mr. Weissman, what would you say is the biggest barrier for someone with a spinal injury in gaining employment? Is it perception? Is it transportation? What would you say it is? It's a hard question because depending on where you are, if you're in Washington, D.C., and you live there, transportation is a non-issue because the, every subway stop is accessible. I mean, sometimes elevators are not working, but every subway station or metro station, as they call it, is accessible, and you can roll out your front door, and with the right amount of curb cuts and the curb cuts in the right places, your disability and transportation is a non-issue for working. Stigma will always be there. Uh, it, you know, my goal is to make everybody – I used to joke around about this that we have to make wheelchairs cool. We have to make it so that everybody wants to be in one. <laughs> and mm. Then the stigma will be have gone away. But till then, there is some stigma associated with disability. Um, I think other disabilities have more stigma. Wheelchair is quantifiable. People see you sitting in it and they get it. You can't do steps. You might need the bathroom changed or your desk up on blocks. Whereas um, mental illness or... Uh, uh, other, you know, mental disabilities and limited intellectual capacity um, probably are more stigmatizing and less known quantities, and employers are probably more afraid. But nobody likes difference. I mean, we shy away from it. And it's really uh, the discrimination piece is there. People have to want to take a chance. They think. I mean, if, if everything, you know, this is the way the law works, and then we talk about the way people work. The way the law works is if two people applied for a job and they were exactly the same qualifications, exactly, which never happens, but let's say it does, and one was disabled and one was not, and you didn't hire the disabled one because they were disabled, you've discriminated against them because the reason you didn't hire them was their disability. Now, suppose the reason you didn't hire them was that you had to move the, uh, put a wide stall in the bathroom. 
So you'd say, well, it wasn't the disability. It was the $1,500 it would cost me to replace the uh, toilet enclosure and move it. Um, that would be a discriminatory practice as well. But good business sense says, well, why should I spend $1,500? I don't have to. Um, I'll hire the able-bodied person. So you need people to meet to, to see this for what it is, that the failure to act reasonably, the failure to make reasonable accommodation is in and of itself a discriminatory practice. Um, and you can't be just even-handed like the MTA says. If you can crawl in, you can take the bus. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what the biggest obstacle is. And, of course, other people have their own. There's, you could have identical diagnoses, and one guy's a human dynamo and wants to work, and the other guy is not as driven and right. won't put out as hard to get the job or to keep the job. Um, disabled people are no different from anyone else. I get frustrated when I hear that they make better employees than everyone else. Um, I think they make identical employees to everyone else. Some are funny and great and nice and sweet and fun to be with and can't do enough for you. And some are bitter and lazy and whatever other bad things you can say about any coworker that you have. Um, people are people. I the only, thing, by a uh, you know what, Jim, the only yeah. thing I've seen different is incredibly high uh, attendance. Over the years, with uh, 20 years I've been in business with my employees in, in, that I've placed different places. But People I do think say that. that. I'm, I'm still skeptical about that, but I, I have heard that. Yeah, well, I have people who have not missed a day for 14, 15 years. But let me just say that whether they were a person with a disability or a person of color, if they've been prevented from work, the person would probably be more grateful. Do you know what I mean? Any group. Any I suppose group that's that. true. I suppose yeah, that's true. But not, not just a person, you know, with a disability, uh, but the rest of it, what you said, I, you know, I know exactly, exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. You know, so, you, you Jim, know you've that, arrived at the non-discrimination level when you can hate a guy with a disability, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've had to fire people with disabilities in my life. Oh, and, listen, at our company, no pity. You do the yeah, job you know, and with, it, with it, no pity. You know, you pity. have to treat people like employees. You can't treat yes. them like they're special. And that's exactly what we do, and I think everyone understands it. I, I do. I, you know, I once had a disabled employee actually steal from us. And I was, you know, once you could have knocked me over with a feather, I was so shocked that that happened. But when we had to fire him, the guy said, well, where am I going to get another job? I'm disabled. And I said, I should be calling the police. You're lucky I'm not calling the police. Yes, right. You, you see, Don't ask me about your next job. You blew this one. I always tell employers I work with, no pity. People don't need pity, they need paychecks. And the only Absolutely way you're going right. to get paychecks is if you're doing the job and you're equal to everyone else. You know, if you don't do the job, you don't keep the person because the minute you do it the other way is the minute more people with disabilities won't get hired, which is why 
charity, pity, all of that is the worst thing that could possibly happen in the world of employment. The thing that you need from employers is, I, would, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it compassion, but what I would say is the desire, the, the willingness to accommodate people's disabilities has to be there. Um, if you're somewhat flexible um, as an employer, it helps uh, people with disabilities enormously. Um, but other than that, I don't think, and that's the law anyway, reasonable accommodation. The law is written brilliantly because you're only asking for people to behave reasonably. So, you know, the opposite of reasonable is unreasonable, and nobody wants to be unreasonable. So it, it, it's, it, it's nice that it's called reasonable accommodation, and, of course, reasonableness is based on the ability to accommodate, not any formula other than the one you're considering at the time. So what's reasonable for Donald Trump, the employer, won't be reasonable for 7-Eleven or some other mom-and-pop type business. Right. Exactly. Well, Jim, um, how, how large is the United Spinal Association? Uh, what, what is the main mission? What is your main charter Okay. Give, us an, give us an example of a couple of programs. We have 40,000 members throughout the United States. We have about 50, give or take, probably give a few more employees. Um, they're around the country. Most are in our New York headquarters, but um, we also own New Mobility Magazine and publish that, um, which is a lifestyle magazine for people on wheels. Um, excuse and, me. Uh, you know, uh, it's just theme issues. We have a sex issue, which is by far our most popular issue, and an employment issue and a products issue and services. So um, we do that. We also um, have a Washington office that does lots of policy work, um, public policy work, um, and works closely with AAPD, among other organizations. Um, and I'm very involved in that. Um, and in the Washington office, there's a veterans policy person as well. The mission of uh, Vets First, our veterans policy piece, um, is the reintegration of disabled veterans into the community. It's always been our philosophy, even when we were EPVA, that once you're home, once you're no longer uh, a Department of Defense employee and you're hurt and you've been injured and... and uh, you can't get up the curb or you can't get in the movies or you can't hear the television or whatever it is from your injury, you're just like everybody else. Your disabled veteran status doesn't mean anything. And you've got to learn what resources are out there for you and what your rights are, and you have to know there's a community of people that will help you and support you. So that's the mission of Vets First. The mission of United Spinal in general is enhancing the quality of life of people with spinal cord injury and disease. So access to things like uh, wheelchairs, which is a huge issue. Wheelchairs are not protected by Obamacare. Um, durable medical equipment and medical supplies are not protected. So that diabetic supplies and ostomy supplies and catheters for people with spinal cord injury um, and wheelchairs themselves uh, are a place that third-party payers like Medicaid, Medicare, and insurers can skimp, and they do. 
and this is CMS. This is our own government doing it. Um, they and, have and why, rules. Why can why can they skimp, Jim? Because Obamacare guarantees you certain things, and it doesn't guarantee you optimum, for example, wheelchairs. So that if there's a wheelchair that's a manual chair that's lighter, that you could lift yourself and put in your car, but it costs more, they'll buy you the heavy one uh, oh. if you're on Medicaid. Um, if you need, if you remember that uh, there was a stair climbing wheelchair called the iBot. Um, it was invented by Dean Kamen, the guy that invented the Segway. Johnson and Johnson bought the rights to the iBot from Dean Kamen and was going to sell the iBot stair climbing wheelchair. And I don't know that it's right for everybody, but I know that it was a life changer for a lot of people. It had an elevated seat so you can get things off high shelves and out of cabinets by the seat elevating. It could recline so you could redistribute your weight so you wouldn't get the cubitus ulcers, i.e. bed sores. Uh, people who sit all the time have a huge problem with skin breakdowns. Um, Christopher Reeve died of such a sore just because it got infected, just to show you what we're talking about. Um, Johnson & Johnson could not get HHS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in Health and Human Services, to uh, reimburse for the IBOT. So it just went out of production. Is that so, right? Yes. It, you cannot get one now. And it's a pity. It's just a pity. Um, it, it, there's very little money put into research and development of new products like this because there's no reimbursement available for them, so there's no market for it. And it's, it's really a very unfortunate thing. Um, there's so much technology, uh, robotics, uh, that could get rid of the need for personal care assistance, but you're going to have to do a capital outlay if you're government to make this happen, and it has not. So we lobby hard on those issues, and we try to organize people around the country to lobby their legislators for it. We have an annual role on Capitol Hill, which is coming up June 7th to 10th, where we bring 80 to 100 wheelchair users from all over the United States to D.C. We train them for a day and then send them to Capitol Hill. And there is nothing harder to do than to sit opposite a quadriplegic who is discussing his need for sophisticated, durable medical equipment and say to him, sorry, we're not going to help you. So we have a, a we bring people in even though it requires home attendant care and great expense. And we try to raise money to do it. We sponsor all the travel. And we bring them into Washington for that purpose and then keep them involved all year from their homes with their legislators on our issues. You know what? Um, disability used to be cross, you know, used to be apolitical. But Congress isn't doing anything now, so everything is political. Um, you know, if Obama wants it, the Republicans say no, and it, it, it's just become very, very difficult to, to get people to do the right thing. It used to right. be that just pointing out the right thing motivated some, at least. <laughs> well, well let, me, uh, let me ask you one question, Jim. What is your website? Uh, there's several. Of course, www.unitedspinal.org is our main site. But we, I recommend you go to spinalcord.org. 
There, it's interactive. You can ask us questions. We turn them around very quickly. We also have an askvetsfirst.org site. Same thing. You write in your questions. It could be about civil rights or health care or equipment or supplies and, uh, um, or veterans' benefits or health care availability, whatever, and we will answer them. We also one call, run one called USA Tech Guide. USA Tech Guide is like an Angie's list about durable medical equipment. Oh. If you use a chair, for example, you can look it up or you're going to, thinking of purchasing one. You can look up online uh, consumer reviews of equipment. It used to be that, that the again, manufacturers Jim? hated this, but now they like it. What is it called again? That one is called USA Tech, T-E-C-H, Guide. Okay. Now, why, and, of course, newmobility.org as well, our magazine. Why I'm asking you this, uh, Jim, is if someone listening to the show wants to make a contribution, where do they go? You can go to www.unitedspinal.org and click on the Donate Now button, and we'd love it if you did. Um, every little bit helps. Well, that's what I always say, friends. You know, sometimes people would say, oh, I can't give a lot of money. That's okay. You can give something. Yes, Every and, you something know, helps. The thing is, once you get involved, we find that people stay involved with us. Uh, if you're motivated enough to get on our website, we've got you. Uh, we think we're intriguing and interesting and cutting edge and different from other organizations in that we're dealing with people on wheels. And, and I, I honestly believe that once you are involved with us, you stay involved. Um, the people who read New Mobility magazine, because it's a lifestyle magazine, it talks about entertainment. It's like the sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, magazine for people that use chairs and scooters. Um, we'll put something political in there, and they get involved. Not all of them. They buy the magazine because they want to know if they can take a trip to... Uh, Belize or something, you know, because we print stuff like that. Um, but then they'll read that they can't get a tie-light chair because it's made of titanium and the government won't pay for it. You know, Medicare won't pay for it. And it bothers them and they get involved anyway. Yeah. Well, Jim, you have accomplished so much in this time you've spent at United Spinal Association and really in the disability community um, so something had to cause that. Somebody. So who, who was your role model? Well, it's tough to say. I think there, there's a guy named Henry Viscardi. Uh, Henry Viscardi was a congenital amputee who started the place I told you I met Paul at. Uh, this camp it was also called Abilities um, and uh, now it's called the Viscardi Center. <clears throat> he passed away about 10 years ago, but um, he was a remarkable guy, and uh, I, I, I was amazed at what he was able to accomplish despite his disability, and uh, I think speaking truth to power um, is very important. I think if you... I learned that there, I think. If you just keep saying, if your argument is logical, 
I compare it to blondes being dumb. You can't observe that blondes are dumber than anyone else. You just can't. So if people stop saying it because it's offensive, no one goes around thinking blondes are dumb. I, I feel like that's what happens with disability. If you keep plugging, if you hang in there, um, like look at the taxis in New York City. It's a great example. We have 50% of the taxis in New York City are going to be wheelchair accessible by 2020. We had Mayor Bloomberg for 12 years. For 11 years, 11 months of his uh, term, he opposed us on accessible taxis. In the 12th month of the 12th year, of the 11th year, rather, he agreed with us and made a deal with us. We were suing. He made a deal with us and making taxis accessible. All of a sudden, taxis are becoming accessible all over Isn't the Isn't that something, though? That, you know, that, is, it, that is just the don't give up success could be right around the corner. Yeah, you just I mean, keep plugging away. If it makes sense, somebody will pick up on it. Well, Jim, just as I said, when you're talking about uh, Henry Viscardi, you have done all these things. You have accomplished so much. What, what would you say is your greatest accomplishment? Well, I was a single parent with three sons, so that was probably my greatest accomplishment. Because <laughs> um, that was amazing. But um, being a custodial parent, <clears throat> when I got divorced, my kids were 12, 11, and 6. But, uh, wow, that was a big job. Yeah, Jeff, going, moving from now, they're 35, 34, you know, so they're old. But, and I, I have five grandchildren already, too. But but moving from there, I would say doing the transit thing. I was 28 when I sued. I didn't know anything. By the time we finished, I was 33 years old. Um, I knew how to be a lawyer. I had my head on straight about who I was in the world and what my role was going to be and what I was going to do, I thought, you know. And uh, I would say that making transit accessible in New York, because it hadn't been done really anywhere, yet was probably the biggest thing. Um, the ADA and being involved in it is the biggest effort and most successful and most fulfilling effort I've ever been involved in. Yeah, that is definitely a big one. Yeah, that, that was amazing. Your... I've never felt better about anything. Um, I've, I've um, witnessed all kinds of angst and turmoil in the disability community over the years, but I have never witnessed harmony like this ever um, in anything in my life where you had a nationwide effort of people with disabilities to get this job done, and it happened. And it happened in only two years. It was a remarkable effort. Anybody that's worked on lobbying knows that two years is very short. Yeah. And that's right. all it took, and it was an amazing effort. Well, Jim... Thank you so much for being with us, but before we close the show, I always ask the guest, do you have a message to leave for our listeners? I, I, I probably talked myself out, so I would say the, the only message that I have for listeners is if you're a person with a disability and you think the world is treating you badly, I mean, assuming it's not you and you're right, it's not just attitude, and you're right, you can change it. You really can. You've got to seek out people in power and make them fix things. Make it their problem not as well as yours. I will amen that. And we end 
every show with a quote from someone that has impacted our world. And the quote today is, We know that equality of individual ability has never existed and never will, but equality of opportunity still must be sought, said Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.